Let's open our Bibles to James 5. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you would pass that to the center aisle, Sylvester or Will will pick those up and we will pray for you this week. It's my privilege to introduce uh, Kyle Jaggers. Uh, Kyle is married to Susie and she is here this morning and their two daughters, Lainey and Lorelai, uh, have come as well. Um, Kyle um, placed his faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 16. And um, about 10 years ago, they um, planted Nola Baptist Church, which is in uptown New Orleans. Uh, Let me tell you how I came to meet Kyle. About 10 years ago, I received a call from Jack Hunter, who is the director of missions, executive director of uh, the Baptist Association in New Orleans. And uh, he asked me, would you consider entering into a partnership of some kind with um, a, a church revitalization on Magazine Street, the, the Valence Street Baptist Church property. So I went to New Orleans, met with Jack. We went to the property, which was built in the early 1900s. It's an incredible uh, property on Magazine Street. And uh, Jack and I toured the building and we got down on our knees and prayed, Lord, we, if you would be pleased to use this property, we want to be a part of it. And so I just kept praying and praying how we could be involved. And so um, about 18 months ago, I think I saw where uh, NOLA Baptist Church had been selected in a grant program through Hobby Lobby to receive the property, which will be deeded to them in December. And uh, I'm just so excited. So I reached out to Kyle. I said, oh, we got to get me together. And so we met in New Orleans, and we have begun a friendship, and I'm just so grateful. He's come to our pastor's conference, conferences, and uh, I just am so thankful for uh, a steadfast witness in New Orleans. And I think of that as a part of our mission strategy and focus as a church. Yes, we, we want to have a strong Jerusalem ministry, but also in following Acts 1-8 in concentric circles to the ends of the earth. We want to minister to our Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so I don't know about you, but every time I go through New Orleans, I I pray for that city, this megalopolis that is so close to us and uh, feel a stewardship in the gospel that we could be a part of meaningful ministry in New Orleans. Kyle Jaggers and Nola Baptist Church, I think is an answer to that prayer. And I'm so thankful for this brother. I, I love their philosophy of ministry on their website. Four key commitments, the glory of God, the authority of the Bible, the health of the church, and the spread of the gospel. And to all of those, I say amen. So Kyle, we're so grateful that you would come and preach God's word to us. We've been praying for you and look forward to hearing all that God has from James 5 and from your heart. Please come. It's good to be with you this morning, and and it has been a blessing to build this friendship together, Um, and uh, just I love how encouraging your pastor is, I love how sweet he is, Um, and uh, and then you don't even know all the great works that he does, uh, not just here, but then all around the world. Uh, You guys know, uh, but I didn't know. And so uh, every time I look on Facebook, he's either in China or Japan or or something like that. So it's an incredible blessing to be able to get to know him and then now to be able to meet you. Uh, we have been in New Orleans. We've been in New Orleans for 10 years, as Pastor Jim said. Um, it's been crazy. I did not grow up in New Orleans. I grew up in Shreveport. Um, so it was 
kind of a bit of a culture shock for us. Uh, living in Uptown initially, we, we lived not too far from Audubon Park and going to restaurants or going to the park, we would see sometimes celebrities and famous people. The only time I've been starstruck though is when I met Morris Bart. And <laughs> I was in Audubon Park and there's a, there's a concrete path and then there's like a, 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 a off the concrete path trail that goes around the full perimeter of the park. And it was early in the morning and, and I was running uh, at that time and uh, no longer in these days. And I had to go to the restroom. And so I saw the, the public restroom there and it's really small and I made my way to it and Morris Bart made his way to it at the same time. And I kid you not, he got there before me and he turned and he opened the door and he turned to me and he said, one stall, that's all. And then slammed the door. I kid you not. I kid you not. So there you go, Morris Bart. I love this passage in James. Um, it gets straight to the point right away with an imperative, with a command. And he says right at the beginning in verse 7 of James chapter 5, he says, Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Notice what it says there. It, it says, until the coming of the Lord. He doesn't say, be patient for the coming of the Lord. He says, be patient until the Lord comes. So in other words, the patience that he's commanding us to have here in verse 7, and all the way down through verse 11, it's not, it's not patience waiting for the day of the Lord to come. It's not fixing our eyes on that day, but it's saying that you must have patience. You must have steadfastness. You must have long-suffering until the Lord comes. Because when He comes, there'll be no more need for patience. When the Lord comes, there'll be no more need for steadfastness. There'll be no more need for long-suffering. In fact, the Scriptures tell us there'll be no more need for faith in that day. We will see Him and behold Him with our eyes. And so, until that day comes, though, we desperately need patience. We desperately need faith. These verses today, they give us three reasons why we need patience. Long-suffering, steadfastness. We need patience because, one, we have a work to do as His people. And then number two, we need patience because He has called us to be a certain type of people. And then number three, we need patience because He calls us to endure sufferings. There are sufferings to endure in this life. But what we'll see is over and under and all around all of this is the promise that God is merciful and compassionate and that God will give sustaining grace to carry us on through until that day. So if you join me in verse 7, we see that we need patience because we have work to do. We have a mission as God's church. It says in verse 7, 
Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. I get this emphasis on mission or this emphasis on work from the farming analogy here in verse 7. Jesus loved to use agricultural analogies to describe the kingdom and to describe the the mission of the church. In Matthew chapter 13, he uses three. He uses the parable of the sower. What is our ministry like? It's like casting seed in different types of soil. Then he uses the parable of the weeds, of that in this soil that there's, there's an enemy that we have and he comes and he plants weeds. And then there's the parable of the mustard seed. This tiny seed bears the fruit of a great tree. And so Jesus loved to use agricultural examples, agricultural illustrations to explain for us the kingdom. And all three of those parables, how does he introduce it? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 9, verses 30. 7 through 38, he equates our mission as a church to a harvest. You remember what he said in Matthew 37, or Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is a people of souls that do not know Him. And the labor is the labor of the church to go and to tell people the good news of the Gospel. The ultimate mission and work of Nola Baptist Church in uptown New Orleans and the ultimate mission and work of First Baptist Church Gonzales is one and the same. To declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to make him known to people who do not know him that in his name there is the there is salvation there is forgiveness of sins there is freedom and eternal life and that he is lord that's what we are to proclaim verse 10 in our chapter today we're told to follow the example of the prophets who did what They spoke in the name of the Lord. So the farmer's life is what? It's a life of work. I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm a country boy or a farmer boy or anything like that. We're commenting as a family. Look at how how many fields there are here, right? We're city folk. But a farmer's life is hard. That's why I'm city folk. They till the ground. They rise early. They go to bed late. And they plant. God's mission for churches is hard work. It's a ministry to people. It's time with people. It's opening up our homes. It's talking to people about Jesus. It's being involved with the ministries of the church. It's discipling our kids. It's devoting ourselves to prayer. It's meeting the needs of, of the poor and the orphan and the widow. And it's, 
It's organizing our resources to reach the nations, even going and raising up missionaries and supporting missionaries. God's mission is work. It's a life of work. But notice in verse 7 that we work for what? Precious fruit is what it says. We work for precious fruit. And this word precious means rare or costly or of high value. You won't find precious things in Walmart. And that's not me being some uppity city boy looking down upon Walmart, okay? If you calculate the total, at the end of my life, the total number of hours I've spent in Walmart, it, it's probably right up there with my cell phone, okay? I love Walmart, but we won't find precious things at Walmart. That's not their business model. What do we find? We find things that are common and cheap and immediate. The same goes for Amazon and the same goes for fast food. And now we don't even have to go to Blockbuster to rent. You don't have to worry about going to Blockbuster and that new movie being out. Why? Because everything is on demand. It's common and it's even cheaper now and it is immediate. Our commercial world it disciples us to value what is cheap, what is common, and what is immediate. And as a result, what's that producing in our lives? What's that producing in the lives of our children? It's that we become impatient and unable to see and value what is truly precious. Jesus calls us to labor for that which is precious, which is rare, it's costly. We labor for the eternal things. We labor that people will be reconciled to God. We labor, I saw on the back of your bulletin this morning, one of the first things you say is we are a regenerate church. We labor so that people would be born again and made new by the Holy Spirit. Which adds another element then to what precious means from a biblical standpoint. Precious means that it is a supernatural and miraculous fruit. It is a supernatural and miraculous fruit that we labor for. Look again in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. How is, according to verse 7, this precious fruit attained? It's not attained, is it? What does it say? It is received. The fruit is received. It's not attained by our efforts. It's not attained by our strategies. It's not attained by our ability to somehow make Jesus more attractive or more glorious. That's not how the fruit of our work is brought about. It is received. And if it is received and not attained, then we must wait for it. 
We must be patient as we wait for that work. The farmer labors and then he waits to receive the rain. No rain, no fruit. He can work as hard and as long as he wants. No rain, no fruit. We work, we labor, we exhaust ourselves for God's purposes and God's mission. We give our very lives to it. But the precious fruit of the gospel is not something that we can produce. It is a miracle, a supernatural miracle of God. We work, we wait, and we receive. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, the kingdom of God, there's another farming illustration from Jesus. The kingdom of God is, is as if a man sh should scatter seed on the ground. That's the work. And he sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. And what? He then celebrates his great accomplishments. He celebrates his great insight and strategy. No, the seed sprouts and grows and he does not know how. How much more the kingdom of God. How much more the work that He's called us to do. We don't know how. Why? Because it is a supernatural miracle of God. That's what we labor for and that's what we wait for. It's God who produces faith. It's God who saves. It's God who causes people to be born again. It's God who causes churches to grow. It's God who brings the dead to life. It's God's supernatural, miraculous grace that transforms blasphemers of God into worshipers of God and who transforms slaves of sin into slaves of righteousness. It is all God's doing. And it is not typically in His economy immediate. How many mothers are praying for sons or daughters this morning going on years. New Orleans is a difficult soil to till, a difficult soil to plant in. There's lots of distractions. We could summarize those distractions in the three C's. Culture, cuisine, And then an overall just carefree spirit that the city embodies. You know, the, the, the phrase, the city that care forgot. You just come there. It's like, man, let's, let's just not worry about anything. Be committed to anything. It's like, yeah, that sounds good. As we've planted Nola Baptist Church over the last 10 years, we've identified some other seas. Crackheads and calloused hearts. The city is full of crackheads and calloused hearts. And you minister in that context. And, and listen, I'm no expert on church growth or anything like that, but crackheads and calloused hearts is not the most conducive 
way to grow a church. It's been discouraging. Our church has been slow to grow. We've, it's slow to see salvations. It's been slow to see people born again, and that's not what we expected. We expected fast growth of preaching of the gospel and lives transformed and our church full. It's not been our experience. And so many times throughout the last 10 years, we have cried out to God, God, where are you? God, do, do you see do you see our labors? God, do you see how we're, 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 we're trying to serve You? We're trying to magnify Your name here in this place. And God, where are You? When are You going to bring the fruit that we're waiting for? Over the last 10 years, we have not seen the floodgates open up and the rains pour. But here's what we have seen. What God has been faithful to do is to give us scattered showers. Scattered showers of His faithfulness and of His power and of His mercy and of His grace. We've seen some people come to know the Lord. And here's what we've identified. That there's one more C that we've been able to see. The called. That God is effectually calling people to Himself. And listen, there is no calloused heart or no amount of crackheadedness that can hinder the effectual call of God. And here's the other thing we've learned. God loves to call those calloused of heart and the crackheaded. He loves to do it. He delights in doing it. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Jesus also said, the sheep, my sheep will hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The trial of faith for us over the years has been not believing that God is able to save, but that God is glad to save. That's been the great trial of faith for our church, that God is glad to save. And we need faith not only in God's power to save, but in His heart to save. He delights in saving people whose lives are destitute and ruined by sin and unbelief. And I know that's true because He did it for me. All I ever have been was a lost cause. All that I ever have been was destitute and my life ruined by sin. But Jesus was faithful. He called my name. And by His grace, I heard His voice and followed Him. He's doing the same thing. He's doing the same thing in New Orleans. He's doing the same thing in Gonzales. So we preach the Word. We devote ourselves to prayer. We do the work. And then we wait. We wait for God to send the rain and to give us precious, and to give us precious fruit believing that He is both able but also believing that He is glad and happy to do it. He does not 
promise us fish and give us a snake. He does not promise us bread only to give us stones. He does not promise us that I'm with you always until the end of the age, so go and therefore make disciples and then abandon us and leave us to our own strength and our own devices and our own strategies. He is faithful. And so if a church is going to labor for supernatural fruit, what do we have to be? We have to be a supernatural people. That's what we see in verse 9. Look in verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus said in in John 13, 35, you know this verse more than likely. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. No one has ever said in the history of the world, I, I feel safe in saying this, no one has ever said in the history of the world, when I saw how that church griped at one another and were mean to one another, and fought with each other, I thought, Jesus is Lord. No one's ever said that in the history of the world. You know what people have said? The way they loved one another. The way they sought unity together as a body. The way that they were there for each other and served one another. There's something otherworldly about that. It's not natural. Jesus must be Lord. This gospel must be true. They must have experienced some sort of supernatural work in their life. And maybe, maybe that work is available for me as well. People have said that in every place, in every age where the church loves one another, where the church models the gospel towards one another. God, one of the means by which, one of the chief means by which God supernaturally draws people to Himself and to faith in Christ is when the church, a local church, loves one another in His name. It's a mighty witness for the gospel, which means this, when we actively grumble against each other, when we actively devote ourselves to division in the church and fighting and meanness towards one another, we actively oppose God's supernatural work among the nations. We oppose it. That's why the warning in verse 9 is so severe. What does it say again? Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged Behold, the judge is standing at the door. God does not bless churches that do not love one another from the heart. We think about the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation. What does Jesus say about them? He says, you have lost your first Love, or you have lost the love that you had at first. Jesus judges churches that do not have love. 
The Apostle Paul says that if someone is divisive, have nothing to do with that person. How we love one another within the body is eternally significant and important for God's mission and God's global purposes in Christ. But a church that preaches the Word, a church that prays, devotes themselves to prayer, and a church that loves one another, God will bless as a mighty witness for His name. Isn't it amazing how simple Scripture is? Complex, eternal ends of saving people and transforming people and reaching the nations accomplished by such simple means of saying what He's told us to say, asking Him to do all the work, and then just being happy together and loving one another. And Jesus does it. He brings the rain and we receive the fruit of that rain. We have work to do. We have a people to be. And then in verses 10 through 11, we see we have sufferings to endure. Look in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of of the Lord. No one escapes suffering in this world. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. We can buy all the insurance that we want, and we can set up all the ring cameras that we want, and, and cross all our T's and dot all of our I's. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 not a popular verse. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in Him. Amen. Give me that faith, Lord. The verse doesn't stop there, does it? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. We can't say the exact ways that we will suffer. No one knows that. But if we embrace the life of the cross, if we embrace the life of public witness and the life of ministry in Jesus' name, Scripture is clear, we will suffer. And the prophets are an excellent example of this. Think about Jeremiah. God called Jeremiah to a preaching ministry. And He told him, He said, you're going to go to the people and you're going to tell them what I... Tell what I've told you and no one's going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to hate you and they're going to try to kill you. In other words, he told the prophet Jeremiah, he said, go and till the field and plant in the field, but I will not send rain. But you be faithful to go and till that field and plant in that field. It's an amazing example of steadfastness. It's an amazing example of faith. Oh, that God would give us faith like Jeremiah to obey Him and to do the work He's called us to do and to trust Him even when we don't see the fruit that we would like to see. 
The crucible of suffering, it, it leads us to the inevitable question. This is one of the reasons why I think God brings suffering on our lives. It leads us to the inevitable question of, is God enough? Is Jesus enough? If all I get in, in this life is Jesus, then am I still blessed? Verse 11, the first part of verse 11 answers, yes. Look in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You're blessed. If in the midst of suffering you remain steadfast to Christ, you're blessed. If in the midst of suffering all you have is Jesus, then you're blessed in God's eyes and in God's economy. Can you say that this morning? Is that true for you this morning? True in your heart? True in your mind? Is it true in the way that you live and what you devote yourselves to that Christ is the greatest blessing I could ever have in this life? If everything is stripped away, are you blessed if you have Christ? Look again in verse 11. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. We know what happened to Job. Where Jeremiah experienced suffering for his ministry and for his preaching, Job experienced suffering that is common to life. Loss of family, loss of health, loss of possessions. If everything is stripped away like Job and Jeremiah, do we believe at our core that if we have Jesus, then we are truly blessed? In God's economy, you're blessed if you hold fast to Jesus when life is hard. You're blessed if you hold fast to Jesus and you trust Him while raising your children and it's difficult. You're blessed when you trust God through cancer. You're blessed when you trust God and, and your bank account is empty. You're blessed when you trust God and your marriage is struggling, but you're resolved, we will not give up, but we will remain faithful before the Lord. You're blessed when you refuse to compromise God's truth, even if it costs you something. You're blessed even when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're blessed when you cry out to God or when the cry of your heart to God is, God, where are you? And you remain steadfast to Him. I'm grateful to have the example of a mother who remains steadfast to the Lord in the midst of suffering. Growing up, my father left when I was a baby and my mom married a man who was an abusive alcoholic. And I just remember from a young age, knowing this is what life was, but knowing this is not good. And someone invited my mother to church and Jesus saved my mother and she was making us go to church week in, week out. And I'm learning all these things about the Lord and learning about the cross and learning about 
the gospel and learning about God's goodness and his, his sovereignty over all things and how he watches over his people. And then we go home to an angry, abusive house. I'm thinking to myself, God, where are you? Do you not see us, Lord? Do you not see what we're going through? Do you not see the, the suffering that we're in? Of course, I'm not thinking that as a kid. Thinking, God, give me a Nintendo and do something about him. What a great gift it was to see the steadfastness of my mother who went from fearing this man to being strong and mighty in the Lord. We will obey the Lord. Me and my sons are going to church. Me and my sons are going to devote ourselves to Jesus and to His teachings. You're blessed if you remain steadfast. It was the witness of my mother that God used the instrumental means in my life to draw me to Himself. To show me the worth of Christ. That's what my mother showed me in the midst of her suffering. Jesus is infinitely worthy. He's infinitely valuable. There's nothing else that's worth what Jesus is. There's no treasure that's greater. And I saw that exemplified in the life of my mother who remained steadfast in suffering. God, of course, could spare us from all of that stuff. He could spare us from suffering. He could spare us from the, the, the difficulties of mission work, of, of His mission and His work that He calls us to. He could spare us from having to be united with grumbling people. He could. He could spare us from those things, but He doesn't. He calls us directly into all of it. He calls us into the suffering, into the mission, into the difficulties of being a body of believers. Why? Why does he do that? The answer is at the end of verse 11. And I'll read the whole verse. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful it's an amazing verse why does God call us into these things what is his purpose his purpose is to show himself compassionate and merciful there's a great illustration of this in John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress the story of a man named Christian and Christian lives in the city of destruction. And he knows that the city is going to be destroyed one day. And so he flees the city of destruction and he goes to, uh, on this journey to the celestial city and he finds the cross. And, when, and, and, and on his journey, he's got this burden on his back, which is the burden of his sin and the condemnation of his sin. And when he goes to the cross, the straps are loosened and the burden falls off of his back and rolls down this hill. The cross is at the top of a hill and the burden rolls down this hill into a tomb. 
and is shut forever. And He finds at the cross mercy and forgiveness and freedom from the burden of His sin. And then He meets this man named Interpreter. And Interpreter takes him to all these different rooms and shows him all these different illustrations of what his new life in Christ is about. He takes him to this one room and in this room there's a wall and fire is coming out of the wall. And there's a man in that room who's just constantly dousing the fire with water. And no matter how long he does it and how much water he pours on it, the fire just continues to burn. He's never able to extinguish it. And Christian asks Interpreter, he says, what does this mean? Interpreter says, the flame is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. And the man that you see pouring the water is the devil. He's trying to extinguish the flame of faith. That's what life on mission will feel like. It will feel like through a host of sufferings and a host of difficulties and a, ho- and a host of failed expectations. It will feel like Satan is always pouring water to extinguish faith. And in those moments, you will cry out like we have in planting our church and like I did when I was a kid and like so many of you probably already are right now in some sort of situation that you're patiently enduring, trusting God for. God, where are you? Do you not see? Interpreter takes takes Christian on the other side of the wall and there he sees another man. And it's while the one man who is the devil pours water onto the flame. This other man pours oil onto the flame. This is what interpreter says. This is Christ who continually with the oil of His grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by means of, despite what the devil can do, the souls of His people prove gracious still. When your patience and your steadfastness is tested, causing you to cry out, God, where are you? He's there behind the wall, unseen, pouring the oil of His grace, enabling faith. And when you are going through some sort of trial, one that rips your heart right out of your chest, praying for that son or daughter to come to know Jesus and it seems you've been doing it for years and no end in sight and you cry out, God, where are you? He's there behind the wall, unseen, pouring the oil of His grace, enabling faith. And when you minister the Gospel week after week, whether it's a ministry of this church or whether it's a relationship that you have or whether it's co-workers at work and you think, God, When will I see you move in these people's lives? I'm getting tired, God. I'm frustrated, God. My patience and my faith is growing so weak. Where are you? He's there 
unseen behind the wall, pouring the oil of His grace, enabling faith. We have to believe this promise above all other promises. God calls us to wait for His reign. Why? In order to show Himself merciful and compassionate and gracious. With such a great promise from such a great God. Let's close with the resolve of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It says, and as I read these, think of the imagery of what I just read to you from Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and, and that promise at the end of James 5.11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's His purpose in our lives. Imagine Jesus pouring the oil of His grace onto the flame of faith in your heart as, you, as I read these verses. Let us as a church, as church is, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Lord, we love You. God, thank You for Your great grace. Lord, thank You for Your your precious promise in Your Word that that You are faithful and that it is Your purpose to show compassion and mercy to us. As we strive to do Your work, as we seek to be the people You've called us to be, and as we endure suffering in Your name by faith, Your purpose in all of those things as we wait for You to send the rain, Your purpose is to show Yourself compassionate and merciful. So may we see You as such and may we act in faith on the promise and purpose of your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Kyle. As we close our service today with the responding in faith, I don't know how James 5, 7 through 11 has intersected your life, but really it is a call as we get ready to leave to say, Lord, how do you want me to live? Who do you want me to follow? Let's stand together as we sing, Oh Great God. If there are needs on your heart, we'd love to pray with you, but may we all seek him together in obedience.